Pastor Mitch. I am flying solo today, unfortunately, uh, and for a good reason. We did just have a crazy week here at Church of Indian Rocks. We had uh, Trunk or Tree, and then this past week we had Jamboree. So we've been flying, flying through and through, being able to have a lot of people on campus, a lot of first-time visitors, and just uh, being able to have our church family love on the community, which is so awesome. Uh, I love... If you're interested in why we did Trunk or Treat, you can actually go back on our podcast and uh, look at my reasons why we do Trunk or Treat, kind of like Halloween Trunk or Treat style devotional for our serve night that we did last week. Um, And I'm super excited with this one. This one's going to be a lot of fun because through Jamboree, we were able to set up a booth as the young adults. We had a refinery booth with uh, with our adult ministry tent out there, and we actually had people walking by and scanning the QR codes and... Um, being able to leave questions and check out the ministry page and look at our podcast. There was a lot of good interaction with people from our community and young adults who honestly are looking for a place to be. And I think that's the heartbeat behind the refinery. And for all of you listening and and all of you who participate and come, you know that's what it is. We're here to preach the word and talk about it and, and build community around that. And I love what God has been doing. So With all of that being said, that's my intro uh, to this episode of The Mailbag. With the amount of questions we had um, entered in since the last time we did The Mailbag and me now kind of being able to sit down and record some answers to the questions, we have over almost eight or nine really good questions. And that might not seem like a lot, but when you hear the content of them, it is good. But I like to get personal for you to know who I am, kind of share my heartbeat with you guys. I, I can always count on one of our faithful here, uh, Chris Campbell, sending me questions. He tried sending me a question the first go around, but it was like in old English redneck, so I couldn't even read any of it. Um, and even after he explained the question to me, it made zero sense. So he went for round two. This time he put it into an old English generator, and it came out a little bit better, but I'm going to give you guys the gist of the question And then I'm going to answer pretty much his question was, if I could have any type of car, what would that car be? Well, A, there was a milestone today in in the Vandenbroek household. Uh, Lola, a.k.a. my pickup truck that everyone now knows, uh, hit 100,000 miles. She's a 2011. So for me, that seems like a lot. Some people seem it's wild that I only have 100,000 on the truck. But hey, we'll take it either way. So I can't, can't throw her out. Um, just yet. So Lola is still my tried and true. I love pickup trucks. I love I love my Ford Ranger. But some backstory: um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was super young. Uh, we had a stepdad in the picture for a little bit, and uh, he loved doing like not when I say model cars, not like Legos, <laughs> right? Uh, he loved doing those like intricate like thousand piece. Like you're piecing together the engine to then put it into the hood to never be seen by the light of day, and yet you have the satisfaction that you built it and painted it to spec. Like one of those type of models. He loved doing those, and it was like the semi-trucks. So, of course, me being in middle school, I wanted to connect. I wanted to do what he was doing because I thought it was super cool. So he bought me a, I can't even remember the year, but it was a Plymouth Prowler, right? And so... What those cars are, they're pretty much the cool version of a PT Cruiser. Sorry to anybody who drives a PT Cruiser. Still, maybe. I don't know of many. But it, it, it has the PT Cruiser like candy corn body, but most of them are convertible. And then the front two wheels, instead of being kind of like tucked into the like nose of the car, they are popped out almost like a hot rod tire. And I thought it was the coolest, coolest car. I was so stoked to be able to 
build that. And so for a very long time, I wanted that car. Now I look at it and I'm like, it just looks like a PT Cruiser. So it's been ruined for me, but that's the car I wanted. So there's your answer, Chris. Um, hope that satisfies this and, and you keep coming up with your crazy language questions. Um, but with that being said, as I, we were pray, I was praying through the questions and kind of wanted to see, actually a really great question came in um, via text message. One of you guys texted me this morning with an amazing question. And so of course I asked, um, you know, can I share this on the mailbag? We're going to be recording it today. And they said, oh, absolutely. So well, I, want to, I want to kind of toss it in. It's, it's a more applicable question, but I think it's also, there's a deep theological truth to it. And that's why I love it so much, because I love when the two worlds kind of come together of, of application and theology. They always should. Um, and I want to throw this phrase out there. I want to throw out, you know, proper doctrine leads to proper doxology, or proper, proper study leads to proper worship. And and so I want to read the question here for you, and it says, you know, I have a Bible question. Both you and Pastor, Pastor Jeff have been talking about how our faith isn't based on emotion, spiritual high, worship experience, feelings, etc. However, in all capitals, <laughs> this does not mean that I, or does this mean that I can't get excited to worship with others and serve? I look forward to Thursday nights to fellowship and worship, but I'm just as thankful for the times I get to worship and serve by mopping my floors talking to God. I'm always so excited afterwards, uh, afterward any event, so I guess I was wondering if that's a false selfish excitement, being excited after events, conferences, concerts, all those things. And so that's where we were able to have amazing discussion, and, and my answer kind of was summed up like this, you know, and, and emotions we're created emotional beings. I mean, I'd, we bring up the reality of Genesis, right? God looked and he saw and it was good, right? And he kept going through the days, all six days. He, even when he created us, he said it was very good. And so there's this, there is a sense of satisfaction, right? Of emotions, even within God who is creator. He, he authored emotions for us. And so emotions are amazing in our walk with God. The fact that you feel and the way that you feel is a blessing by being with God. So the way our emotions can go wrong is when we chase them to solidify our relationship with Jesus. So as long as your emotions are being formed by your relationship and not your relationship formed by your emotions, then you're in the clear. And I think that's the big definitive like kind of set benchmark we have to look at, right? Like, are you constantly chasing the emotional highs to solidify your walk with the Christ? Or is it because you're walking with Christ that you get excited to do devotions, that you, that you feel, you know, forgiveness overflow you from reading a certain passage or these types of things happening? That's the difference. And that's why I said I want to open up the answer to that question with, you know, proper doctrine leads to proper doxology. Like, when we study the Word, when we are so wrapped up in it, we can't help but get excited when we read the word or, or feel a wave of conviction when someone reads a truth from scripture that we know we've been struggling with. Those are all good things, whether it is a conviction or a comfort, right? Or a challenge. We look at those things now as purposeful because God has created us to experience those things and to have emotions in the midst of those things. So I pray that helps kind of there. And I had a few verses that I sent, and so I want to kind of pull those up. Philippians 4 um, I thought was a great passage to kind of hit with that. And so Philippians 4, and I said, you know, 6 through 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will surpass all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. So we see anxiety. We see um, thanksgiving, right? We see peace. And I kind of love the way that that tracks because I think if you read all of the Psalter, if you just read David and the other Psalm and the other guys who contributed to the Psalms, right? It's all emotion, <laughs> The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all emotion. And yet, you see, especially in David's, where he's writing what we call them peccatory songs, which are pretty much these just gnarly, like, I want you to rip out the teeth of my enemies, and I want vengeance. And then at the end of it, he says, yet I will never do those things because vengeance is in your hands. Or David's will say, you know, the, you know justice is of the Lord, right? He always ended the, the emotional kind of breakdown with the saying, listen, I know I'm expressing my feelings to you because I know that you ultimately have control of them. And so we see that where it says here, don't be anxious about anything. Take, take the good, the bad, the ugly and bring them to me in prayer, right? You know, but in everything, pray and in supplication with thanksgiving, let your, be thankful. See, we to experience that emotion of being thankful that God hears us. And what happens when we understand that God hears us, he, he might not change anything in the moment, but as long as we know that he hears us because we're in a relationship with him, that brings us that peace which surpasses all understanding. And that's the beauty, I think, of that moment. And so that, again, wraps up, and we had really good discussion on this and, and kind of uh, through that. And so I, wa- I hope that encourages anybody who's listening who might struggle with that, because I do know that Pastor Jeff and I, and the other pastors here at the church, honestly, we all agree with the fact that if, if you're only ever charged up to do anything because it makes you feel a certain way, then we need to help you rediscover what it truly means to have a relationship with Christ and, and to serve him, truly serve him. Because if you're always serving, trying to solidify something, you're never going to be able to full-heartedly serve. But if you're serving because you've been so served by Christ that you can't help but serve other people, man, that's the heart that we're looking for. That's the emotional state that you're looking for, right? You now can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. You can now uh, weep with those who are weeping. I have a verse that I cling to that I love so much that because with my father leaving at such a young age, I, I, I struggled with what does it mean to have a dad? And someone shared Zebaniah 3.17 with me. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who saves. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love and he'll rejoice over you with singing. That is God. That is also full emotion. Rejoice, quiet, love, lavish, you know, sing, weep, all these things. God wants to do those things with us. He wants to enter in those emotions that we have with us. Why? Because he is the Lord our God. It's not he does all those things in hope to be our Lord and God, and, and we don't walk into a relationship with all those emotions hoping that he'll then eventually become our Lord and God. No, we have that experience with him because he is Lord, and that's that proper doctrine leads to proper doxology again. So again, I, I pray that hope, I pray and hope that helps answer that question. But those are two fun questions. That one, you know, kind of the heartbeat between our emotions and our faith, right? Like if we have proper faith, it's going to lead to us experiencing God in an intimate way, and it's going to be emotional, Right, and I think that's an amazing. I hope those two verses kind of help um, with that as well. And so, moving on to another question, um, as we as we're seeking through these things, I think a, a good question. It's one that we already kind of answered, but so I'm going to be brief with it, and I am going to plug an old sermon we did, uh, the Refine Night series that we did all summer. We ended the summer with this topic, but the question is this: It says, "How do you know the difference between my heart desiring something and God's 
calling to something. Some of the background, because I give you guys opportunity on the, on the mailbag questionnaire, I give you opportunity to give some background. Their background was, you know, well, I asked my mom this question, and she just kind of says, you'll know. And it's not wrong. Like, it's a very good kind of like, <laughs> I'm not a parent, but I want to say it's like a good parenting answer because you do want your kids to just unashamedly rely on God. And, and I want, as the young adults pastor, I want all of you to just shamelessly rely on God, like regardless if we know the full answer or not, regardless if we can see our next five minutes or not, right? Like we should just have that hope and that peace and that desire. So, but the way I want to kind of approach this one is to give you kind of two scripture passages and hopefully give you kind of like a good foundational like process into it. Um, again, like I said, the sermon, it's discerning God's will. It's the last one of the summer. Uh, we really hit on it. But the first passage, and I think a lot of us already know this one. And they, if I, as soon as I say the book, you're going to know where I'm going. But the book of Romans, uh, in the midst of everything else that Romans gives us, you know, in such great goodness of God's uh, outworking of, of how he works with us, I think chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. See, that... I hope you kind of caught on to what the foundation of this already is. So if we go back to the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, right, he says it very well. He says the heart's beyond wicked. You know, who can trust it? And that's the paraphrase, right? But that's the summation of Jeremiah. I think it's in, yeah, Jeremiah 29, when he's talking about the heart. He says it's, just, it's beyond wicked. No one can trust it. It's, it's just awful. The only person who can truly judge it, we see, is, is God when he says, I don't look at the outwardly, I look at the inwardly, talking about David, who is eventually going to become king, Right? And so we see only God can truly, really understand our hearts, and that's why it takes him to even bring that change. But that's why I love how Paul opens up this chapter as living sacrifices. So to determine between your heart and God's will, well, first and foremost, it's surrendering your heart fully. It's, make, it's honestly making sure you're his, which is, I think, something that was so amazing from Pastor Jeff's message this week of just talking about the fact of are you his, to truly abide, you know, to be in the word, to just be... To, to be in Christ and Christ to be in you, right? To be born again. The old has passed away and the new is here. And so we see that then again where it says, your body is a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true worship. I love that. I love, because the whole chief end of man, you read any, you read like the Westminster Catechism, this, the New City Catechism, right, that we're going through here on Thursday nights with, with our young adults. Um, it, we see... Like our whole being, our whole reality, our whole life is fostered around the fact that we were created to be in a relationship with God, ultimately bringing him glory. Like, autonomy, I've said this, and I've probably said this, some of you have probably heard me say it way too many times, but autonomy is the biggest lie Satan has ever tried to push him through the garden. Right? Did God really say, or is he just trying to withhold your true freedom? Right? Talking to Eve in the garden. And we see how we were like, you know what? We want to be God. That's, that was the whole gist of it. We want to know these things. So why can't we do it now? Why do we have to wait for God? Why do we not eat from the tree? And so to first help decipher, you know, how do I know the difference between my heart's desires and something that God is calling you to? It's that right there. It is, it is A, 
understanding if you are his or not, but then the second part in verse two, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. How do you renew your mind on those things? Get into the word. The word is alive and active. Hebrews 12, right? It separates bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It dives so deep that no inch of our body, not a centimeter of our body can't be touched by the word of God because that's how alive and impactful and interactive it is. Because remember, Peter says it is God breathed. Timothy says it also. Peter then also reiterates in his book that it's divinely authored by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and the writers and the apostles. So we see all this interaction just from those two authors of Scripture telling us that God is all in in the midst of and through the Word of God. So if we're rooted on it, then we're going to be in His presence. So studying your Bible, reading your Bible, doing your devotionals is the first key step. Having that daily just humility to surrender to what the word of God is saying. But then I want to take you to 1 Corinthians. I think 1 Corinthians also really hits this one pretty good and gives you two good checks and balances, right? Now that you're studying the word of God, you're, not, you're renewing your mind on it daily. You're understanding that God is fully alive and active through his word that he's given us, right? Jesus was the word made flesh. What do we do now? Now you've started to build that knowledge bank. I think in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see an amazing um, passage here in 31, right? And 31 says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And there it is. And this really can be broken down into two questions. Whenever you're approaching a decision, whenever you're approaching a life choice or even what you're about to go do for the next 15 minutes, I think if we ask these two questions, we could save ourselves a lot of grief in life. A, does it honor God? And B, does it glorify his name? See, because a lot of us, we could answer both really quickly, and a lot of us are honestly probably pretty good at the second one. Well, we talk about God all the time. We bring him up, right? We, go to, we do these things. We talk, we proclaim, we say his name constantly. We're really good at, do we glory his name? Yeah, we talk about it, we bring it up, we, we're always doing this stuff. We got that. But are you honoring God? Are you truly, wholeheartedly honoring God in the midst of proclaiming his name? See, and I take this very personally. I can bring this back to just me being a pastor, right? I, I also have a wife. Most of you have met Jess if you're listening to this. If you listen to this and have never been here before, then you've not met Jess, but she's amazing. Um, but I have to also remember as a husband, I'm called to minister to my wife to make sure she's taken care of, to make sure I'm spiritually leading her and guiding her, right? That we are that complementary, that, that one flesh. We've been brought together. We are oath in marriage. I'm to sacrificially love her. And so even as a pastor, I have to safeguard myself that I don't just pour myself so hard into ministry that I leave my own wife behind. See, because I'm bringing glory to the name as a pastor and people see me out here, they're man, that's a man of the Lord. Like there he is preaching, giving the gospel, all these things, all the while my wife is getting neglected at home. None of you see that. None of you might not know what's going on. But my wife's being neglected because she's working long hours and, and when she comes home, I'm nowhere to be found. And I'm doing that for months on end. Now hear me very closely. I'm not saying serving and not seeing her 24 hours a day is wrong. What I'm saying is if I'm not stewarding 
all the things that God has given me in my current life correctly, then there's no point of me to try and even look to the future if I'm not honoring him here in the now. And so when you come face to face with a, hey, I really like to do this, or I, I have a desire to do that, ask those two questions. Can you glorify God's name by doing that or making that decision? Yes, good. Okay, but can you honor God by making those decisions or doing that next step or taking that job or going to school somewhere else? Can you honor him? Can you see what he's given you to be a steward of here in this moment leading up to this pivotal point? And can you say, this decision will help me better steward what he's given me? Or I'm going to see where I'm going to start failing and it's going to become sinful and hurtful to people around me. It might be for the name and the glory of the name, but I'm not going to be able to honor what I know he's put in place in my life. And so, again, I encourage you to go back to that, that sermon discerning God's will that we did over the summer in our Refined Night series. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, can you glorify God's name with the decision? And can you truly say that you are honoring him in your whole life by doing that? Is it going to be something that you add that's going to make other things fall apart? Are you going to serve so much that you can no longer actually sit underneath pastoral teaching? Are you going to be doing mission trips so often that all of a sudden your whole family's been left behind? See, we have to remind ourselves of these things that just because it might glorify the name, it might not honor who God is. And so we have to have both of those in front of us when we make decisions. And how do you do that? By Romans 12, by getting not conformed to the world, by transformed by the word. So be in the word. So that's an awesome question. I hope that helps. Um, I really hope that is kind of um, beneficial for you. We'll switch up the pace here a little bit. Um, I want to take you to um, an interesting question. Again, it's a little bit more applicable, I think, um, but I do think this is one that a lot of us have had recent conversations with, um, have had a lot of, uh, I just, I remember being, and it sounds funny because I'm only 29, um, and so I'm not too much older than most of our, you know, our young adults, most of you guys listening. Um, but what, I wanna, what I'm trying to say with this is this question is just, it's a very applicable notion, and I hope and pray that I can give a concise but very, uh, I guess hopefully, I hope it brings peace. When I was studying for this question, like I truly hope it brings peace for a lot of you listening to this episode. So this is the question. It says, how do you know you found the right one when the time comes? I was like, man, like that's, you know, that's a very good question. Um, and I really, it made me excited to think about it, to ponder on it. And, and one of the things I was taught by a mentor, actually, and I was so thankful I was taught this. Did I heed it right away? No. <laughs> uh, but I definitely, definitely did leading up until now being married to Jess. I did, you know, I heeded it then, and it truly does hit. And it's from Scripture, so I think it's very applicable. And so... Here's the deal. First off, how do you know if you've found the right one when the time comes? Stop looking for the right one. And you're like, that's so cliche. No, stop looking for the right one and pray to be the right one. If you focus on your relationship with God and being, if you're, if you're a man, being that godly man who is building in institutions in his life and his relationship with Jesus so deeply and foundationally that he inevitably just walks right into the woman that God has planted for him. 
so that now you're not scrambling going, oh, I have all these little pet sins and I have all these issues and I have, you know, I don't even know what scripture says about relationships. How, oh, I don't, I better get my act together. And for women, you, we, we tend to not give you enough credit on this side of things. I feel like, and that might be just we, we as men think you're way too emotional to be able to think logically. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Jess is very logical. So what I mean by this is, if, let me read this verse to you. I love, 1 Corinthians, we're only going back to three chapters if you're still in 1 Corinthians, but with this question, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul literally, the CSB words this, just these two, this two, these two verses, this, a word to the unmarried. In verse 8, he says, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, it says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, single. I know some people try to say Paul was married. No, there's no hardcore proof for Paul being married. He definitely lived the life of a single man. He was transient and, and he was all over the place. I mean, and so there was never a record of a wife. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. If God has put it on your heart to truly and genuinely seek a godly marriage and to have a godly relationship and that you have these, these desires, he's got somebody for you. And there are some of us who might struggle through that and realize that we're called to be like Paul. Paul says it's better for you to be single. Then you can go serve the Lord unashamedly and unlimited. You can go do everything. But for some people, they aren't wired that way, right? We only have to go a few verses up. I like this. See, in the verses right above, he talks about the principles of marriage, opening up in chapter 7. But down in chapter 7, verse 7, it says, I wish that all people were as I am, single, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. And what he's saying is, man, like, yeah, I was gifted to be a missionary and go and do things. God called me to this single ministryhood of running around and planting churches and building up pastors and keep going, 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 going. But we also can look back at Genesis and see that God created man and woman equal in worth, different in role, complementarianism if you want to give it a theological label. That is the heartbeat of Scripture, is that God, God created all these animals and all of creation, created Adam and found no one suited to be that counterpart to him, someone to be that partner to him, someone to be that equal, right? Equal in worth, that equal in, in reality, yet different in roles because it was bad for Adam to be alone. Now we know it's just bad for guys to be alone in general, <laughs> right? We get hurt. We make dumb decisions. Testosterone kicks in. No, God, God wanted that counterpart, that complementary part. And so for some of us, we will serve God even better in marriage than we did single because now we have that person who's complementary to us. But Paul is saying some people are built to be single. He, they've, he, they've been given that full gift and they're, and they're able to go serve unabasively and they will find that peace in the midst of that. So I hope you guys, and, and so 1 Corinthians 7, 8 and 9 is amazing. Stop, stop worrying about trying to find the one. Just know if you have the desire to be with somebody, God is going to work through that in your life. So I want you to then go study Ephesians 5, through 33, which is that marriage sermon, right? It's that marriage, wives submit to your husband, husbands submit to the Lord, you know, love your wife sacrificially, 
it's this beautiful picture of how man and woman should interact in that one flesh that we hear in Genesis. When man and woman come together, they, they become one flesh. And so I, I want to encourage you guys with that is, is if I could say one thing even to myself back when I was in my early 20s is stop looking for the one and start being the one that God wants you to be for them to marry. Because I can go, I, can na- I could name Jess out to you in a heartbeat with all her amazing qualities and attributes, even her cute little shortcomings, right? Mine aren't as cute. My shortcomings just suck. But she has cute ones, right? We all, we all aren't perfect. But I could tell you, man, that, that's the type of woman I want to marry. But back in my 20s, she could list out the godly man that she wanted and I would not have fit that bill. Why? Because I was so focused on trying to find the godly woman that I wasn't being the godly man that I knew I needed to be. And so that's my encouragement for you guys on that question. I really hope, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, and Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, amazing passages to kind of dive in and go through. Um, so I really hope that helps. So we've kind of covered the questions about my car, which was silly, but um, hopefully that satisf- satisfied uh, our, our boy Chris, but then the, uh, your emotions and faith, we covered that one. That one was amazing. Um, discerning God's will, and then um, just now finding the one. I think what we're going to do is I have three questions after this question about the read left. We're probably going to save those for another episode, which is awesome. I'm super excited that we have so many great questions, but this one is what I want to end on. It's a little bit more theological. Um, it's they're all super theological. This one's kind of more academic, I should say. So uh, let me put it in this way. Let me just read the question to you. Um, and then they actually, they were in the right book, but then when I tried looking for the chapter they gave, I couldn't find the chapter anymore. So, um, but it is in Romans. The question comes from the book of Romans, and I believe it was Romans 5. Yes. Romans 5. Five. There we go. All right, Romans 5. And the question, this is the question, and now you'll see, they, I, I'll, I'll probably pick on them later, so it's fine. But um, it's, how would you respond to a non-believer if they were to ask why it is that since one man brought in sin to the world, we're all immediately condemned, and Jesus dying on the cross, but we're not all immediately saved. Um, and so he's actually picking up on Romans chapter 5, pretty much verses 12 through 21, um, where it talks about death through Adam and life through Christ. So we can't take this individually um, when, we, when we are reading this passage. It's more so um, when it talks about the many, it uses like the many language, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin and the way spread through all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin not charged to a person's account where there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam. So even 12 through 14 is laying the groundwork of the fact that Adam was like our federal head. And so when he sinned, the curse was put onto all of creation. Now, you and I aren't guilty of Adam's sin. Like, it's not like we have a checklist up there and Jesus is just like, oh, man, Mitch, ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, shouldn't have done that one. No, what happened is, is now we had a conscience. And remember earlier I talked about the fact that autonomy is a lie. Even in Genesis 2, when God created the garden and he put man into the garden, he said, 
you are free to eat of everything, yet do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we were free, but we already had a command. So we, our will was already captive to one thing, right? So we had this, it's, it's not that we weren't created with the ability not to sin, we just have the reality of where we were capable, we just didn't have the understanding, right? Adam and Eve were, were in that presence of God, they were walking with him. And so what it's saying is then now, our wills are bent to a sin nature, right? We are now sinners. We are guilty of sin. We're not guilty of Adam's specific sin. And so that's where it goes into verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, but if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more has the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin because of the one sin came judgment resulting in condemnation, but for the many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. And so it's this reality of when we are born, we are born into the likeness of Adam, right? We now have the capability and the reality and the knowledge of good and evil, and we are inclined to sin. And so even in the Old Testament, Pastor Jeff was talking about this on this last Sunday too, we see this reality of, of God even in the Old Testament, it was by faith that God, God in Genesis 3.15 gave us the promise of a redeemer to come, someone who was going to come fix what just happened with Adam. And so all we had to do was have faith in that. So Noah, he had faith in God's coming judgment. Noah had faith in the reality that God was going to bring a redeemer right? Noah's name meant grace. We see that even with David when he writes the Psalms. He talks about this messianic figure who's going to come and save us. Isaiah, all the prophets talk about this messianic king to come who's going to bring the new covenant. They had faith in that promised Messiah. We now have faith in the one who is now the realized Messiah, the one who came, right? Christ Jesus. And so just as Adam enabled our whole being to be sinners and we were born with an inclination to sin because of the curse, Jesus now came and brought away that whoever surrenders their life to him and is born again can now live in that free gift. And so that's where we have to tell people, because again, people, we have to balance two things. And, and, I, and I love this, and I actually saved this quote from A.W. Tozer because I used it in one of our sermons a while ago when we kind of talked about free will and all those things. Here's what I love how Tozer put it. He said, here is my view. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice, and man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree. By making his choice between good and evil, when he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby contravail the sovereign will of God, but he actually fulfills it. In as such, oh, in as much as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but he should be free to make it. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. And if, you're, if you've ever listened to any of our sermons and our podcasts or anything like this, you know that I always say this, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And there's a tension that I can't explain the full minute details to you and, and how it's fully intricate laid out. And, and I'm okay not knowing the full details because I'm okay seeing how true scripture says that God is sovereign and yet how true scripture says that God created us to be responsible. And so when we read this passage, we see the outfall and the, and the outcome and the downfall of 
our free will of, of eating of the tree, of Adam and Eve making that choice. They were our representatives in the garden. We are all now born into sin. Our whole world, not, not just even our own nature, but our whole world is corrupt and sinful. And so God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 so that when Christ came, he now fulfilled and solidified that gift so that whoever believes in the Son shall not perish but have eternal life. See, because if God was just like, okay, cool, Jesus came on the scene, you all now, whether you like it or not, you're saved, you're going to be in heaven with me forever, and you're going to love it. Again, it takes away that responsibility aspect of having a genuine relationship with God. I love it. Paul's writing to Timothy in one of his letters, and, and he says, Timothy, this, this inscription stands true. The Lord knows who are his, and let all people call on his name and repent from their wickedness. Again, there's that tension that God knows. God knows all things, and yet we are responsible. Think of Jesus in, his, in, in the Gospel of John in his Good Shepherd uh, uh, narrative, where he says, I am the Good Shepherd. I call and my sheep hear my voice, and they return to my flock, Right? It says it, I will not lose a single one of the sheep that the Father has given to me. We see again that there's this balance of the sheep's hearing the call and and obeying it, but God knew it. And so when we read Romans 5, 12 through about 21, we look at it in the sense of of almost a, a governmental, fundamental type notion. We don't look at it as like, very individualistic. It's talking about the realities of the two people. Adam brought sin and death. Christ brings forgiveness and life. We made the choice. Adam and them made the choice to then corrupt the world. Christ came and now provides a way for us to find freedom and forgiveness. See, because we have to balance. And and the best thing that we can do as Christians is when we don't know certain things, don't try to fluff it up. Just be able to be honest and say, I don't know, but I'd love to look into it with you. I have enough confidence to tell you guys this much about it. Jesus is the reversal of Adam, yet you and I have a choice to make. But just know, God knows. And I think that should bring us peace to know that that I am morally responsible, yet God is eternally sovereign. And I do think that, you know, that's a big one. So I think that's almost, that's five questions. And we still have three more good and deep ones there uh, for our next episode. So I'm going to wrap it up with this. I hope you guys are encouraged. I hope hearing just me kind of talk about stuff is still pretty good. I know we had Joe and Jeremy last time um, for the episode, but I am so thankful for this opportunity. I love, send me all the questions, whether it's about what type of car I would want, Um, your emotions and your faith or or finding the one or how in the world do we equate Adam and Christ? Please, I love these questions. I love doing this with you guys. I love being the young adults pastor here at Indian Rocks. And so if you're someone who's only been listening to this podcast and you're local, come hang out. Come reach out. Get get my email. There's my email in there, Mitchell underscore Vandenbrook at IndianRocks.org. Um, if you're local, just come visit us whenever I'm here all the time. And even if you're not and you still want to just talk with me or get plugged in, reach out. That's what we're here for. We're here to strengthen and build each other up in Christ. And if you don't have a walk with Christ yet, to help you find and follow Jesus. 
Uh, with that being said, I pray that this is encouraging. I pray that I hopefully answered some of your guys' questions uh, well enough to help at least kickstart the path for you to kind of walk down it a little bit deeper. Um, and until next time, this is Mailbag Episode 2, and we're out. <laughs>